Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, Lyft, Tesla, and Uber all on the move today. The desk breaks down the headlines driving these names. Plus, Netflix shares shrugging off a big downgrade today. It's now the best-performing bank stock of this month. Can the rally keep going? And check out today's mystery chart. This index is hitting its highest level in over a year. We've got some names that could stand out in this super hot sector. We start off with a new set of records on Wall Street. And while the S&P, Dow, and Nasdaq all clocked in with new all-time highs, it's the small cap Russell 2000 index that got our attention this evening. The index surging more than 2% to hit its own fresh 52-week high. So are the small caps saying big things about the health of this record rally guy. Well, Tim has talked about this, and good for Dan Nathan. Mm. Why, why are you shaking your head? Why? <laughs> it's Monday. We're 30 seconds in. I You're know, already, already a downer. Dan mentioned it on the call. He pointed it out. Everybody says Dan's a downer. He's not a downer. He pointed out the Russell. 161 and a half, basically where we close today in the IWM. That was a high back in May. These are pretty interesting levels. The real high is that 173 level that we traded back in August 2018. But the small caps are absolutely telling a story. They've lagged the broader market for a while. They seem to be catching up. The question is, do we ratchet through this 161 level with the S&P trading sideways for a while and retest that 173 high? It certainly feels as though that's the next move. So, yes. Are you optimistic? No, I, I, listen, I don't bring I just bring it up because it's kind of obvious, right? Like you, you look at this kind of breakout here. We've been looking at this index since the start of February, bouncing around, at least in the IWM, the ETF that tracks the Russell 2000, between 145 and 160 and routinely rejected there. To break out at this time of year when we're seeing new highs every day in the S&P and the NASDAQ, I think it's a kind of obvious sort of choice to say, all right, let's play this one. It's 7% from those all-time highs made in January 2018. And I'll just make one other point that Pete may want to jump all over. Uh-oh. Implied volatility, the price of IWN options, we were talking about it the other way in the SPY. They're just really cheap. If you want to make near-the-money directional bets, you can do it with defined risk. You can play for that breakout and back to the prior highs. Pete? Which makes a lot of sense to me because that's when you want to be jumping in when you've got these low volatilities, right? That's the difference. So you get the push down, you look for the stocks with quality names, in my opinion. When you go up like we are and you look at the volatility index down through 12 now on the VIX, pretty amazing. So where, where are we seeing some of the action? We're seeing a lot of paper being traded all over the place. Volumes are great. We're talking about 21 million per day in the month of November. Now, we've slowed down the last three days or so, and maybe we'll slow down as we get into this holiday week and everything else, and obviously Friday's going to be a half day. But the volume so far in November, Mel, have been absolutely extraordinary, about a million more per day than the year-to-date average, which is a record run rate that we're at already. So, yeah, volumes are there, and I'll tell you what, it's financials, it's big. We talk about this particular sector of of the, the marketplace when we say the Russell. But look at the financials. Look at big tech. I mean, even today, some of those names were absolutely exploding to the upside, Mel. So this is something where we're seeing a nice, broad participation rather than saying, hey, there's four names out there called the FANG. This is a much more than The that. cyclical semis were on fire today. Semis are on fire, and they've, argu- they've arguably led us through. So we talked, we talked a lot here about the Russell down 16% relative to the S&P. So this is, you know, you've got room to run on this thing. And as Pete talks about the breadth here, uh, look, if you are, are gauging value versus 
versus growth, they're basically each up 25% year to date. In other words, you've had it across all sectors of the market. Today, you saw all financial assets rise. You saw the bond market rise. You saw credit spreads tighten. And it tells you, which Pete says, along with the VIX going below 12, is that there is this risk aggression going on out there. And whether that's justified or not, um, you certainly have a dynamic where we've wanted to see this kind of breadth. Financials, biotech, we're going to talk about later in, in the show. There's plenty of places, the rest of the world, emerging markets might have outperformed everything today because of what we saw in Asia overnight, which was very bullish. Should this be risk on at this point of year? Well, I'll just make one point. I think he talks about breadth. The last time we saw this level of complacency matched with a sort of breadth was really late 2017 after the tax cuts and into January 2018. No one could find a single reason to sell a stock until they did. It does feel like that sort of situation. And it also feels like whatever you thought were the impediments to global growth, that sort of thing, they've kind of been pushed out. The big one, obviously, being the trade war. So you do have this setup seasonally where you know, why, why, why can't not? you have the S&P just keep trickling a little higher and then have things like the Russell play catch up and get back to those prior highs? You know, at the risk of agreeing with Danny Downer yeah. here, I, I actually, one of the things that I did today when I looked, looked at the small cap breakout is when was the last time you saw this type of, a, of this steep of a, of a move essentially in small caps and how much room is there to run and what do you look at the rest of the market? And, and so ultimately, if we have this seasonal push, um, reminding that we, you know, we, we have a Fed that's probably on hold, um, you have macro data around the world that hasn't really done a whole lot over the last couple months and, and have stabilized, maybe this is what you need. Hey, Pedro, where are you from? What, where are you from? Minnesota. Minnesota. Midwest. Now, it's fun. Why do I? Okay. Now, you're shaking your head. No, no, I mean, no. it's, it's a, We all know that piece of Minnesota. Minutes and, we all know that. Some people might be watching for the first time. I don't know. I take nothing for granted. Anyhow. Yeah. yeah. We mentioned moved. how many times <laughs> when the stock was trading 225 do we mention United Health and said, you know, mm-hmm. United Health, UNH, at a 13 multiple, historically low multiple for them, makes zero sense. It's going to trade back to the all-time highs we saw in December. Guess what happened today? Traded back to the all-time highs we saw back in December. Now it's trading at a more reasonable multiple, probably closer to 18. So there's a name where if you were to take profits out, it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. That stock has probably had its run. But to Tim's point, how much more can the Russell go? Probably another 7.5%. And healthcare is the other area today that I was looking at where it's been day after day after day, whether it's Merck and Pfizer, throwing UNH, Cigna, Centene, all these various names moving to the upside. I'm no longer in United Health. That was a pitch stock a while back. I finally said, you know what, how much more? I just felt like it was getting a little too stretched. So I decided to go to some of the other names. Cigna's really inexpensive. They're well-managed. They also have a great PE multiple. You look at a lot of these names in that side of the industry, it, it's really interesting right now, Mel, how well those names are doing, and yet they don't get talked about very often until tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, uh-huh. But you mentioned taking a profits in United Health, but then a 7.5% upside in the, the Russell. Russell. On the we, Russell. Well, Tim so, asked the question, how much more is left in the move? I pay attention. Okay, how much more is left in the right. thing you can yeah. but, seven but does that imply there's not much more of a move to the upside in the S&P 500? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I thought the S&P was going to stall a number of times, and here we are continuing to grind higher. I think the beta is probably in the Russell mm-hmm. this point more so than the and s&p the catch-up trades so oh what well, well, hold on, hold no, on. there hasn't I'm, been a single skeptical, hold, on, hold, on, hold on there's not been a single skeptical voice here in this whole conversation i mean listen you know this is how things go when you have a market s&p's up 25 percent on the year nice round number the dow nice so round number skeptical no, I, I mean but like listen <laughs> you know you just said something like well uh you know uh economic data around the world is that not it, so it really people are convinced that it's like bottoming i don't really know why people are convinced that the Fed's on hold. Did you see where the ten-year Treasury yield one seven five going? Well, the curve's actually flattered. Which is fine. Okay, but 
But what I'm saying is, it's like want to argue. <laughs> it's like when you can't find a single reason to sell anything, that's problematic here. And you know, everyone isn't just convinced that everything is all set. You know. For, for all systems go in 2020, I just think the higher we go right now, the lower we go in Q1 But don't you think some of this is people finding different places in terms of what was lagging and what people are buying? We talk about the Russell all the time. I mean, the Russell today, we're leading it off with it. People are selling out of certain things, but I think they're going towards the Russell and certain names outside of that industry as well, where you're looking at specifics and you're saying, you know what, like for me with United Health, it finally sprints to the upside. It's like, you know what, I'm going to go to a different name where I've got similar uh, aspects of what I'm looking at, and yet it's trading at a lower multiple. Those are what I think people should be doing right now is sort of that moving around, just like they always have the rotation effect, so you can continue to move into the upside. And, and quick, guess who else is buying today? Companies. Companies are buying each other. I mean, look at the M&A activity we've had. I don't know why it's necessarily any different now. You could look at every one of these big deals that we've seen over the last week. Some few of them actually kind of came to fruition today. You can argue they're very much industry specific. They're very much company specific. We've had cheap rates for a long time. But you could also say that maybe this is one last gasp. While the getting is good, while the regulatory environment is still very benign. This is, you know, rates just tick down lower. This is a great place for M&A. But we've never been at this point in a boom cycle where rates have been this low. They're begging you to buy each other. And think about what companies like Schwab and Ameritrade are going to do. They're going to take out hundreds of millions of dollars in costs over the lifetime of this sort of deal. And that also means they're going to fire people. You know, 10,000 probably. Well, I know. So, so, so what I'm saying is, it's like, it, it is different this time as far as an M&A cycle at the top of a boom, you know, or, or near a top. Usually it doesn't happen at the bottoms. It does happen at the top, but we've never had rates this low. Well, even as markets hit record highs, some names aren't seeing much love. One investor's trash, maybe another's treasure. <laughs> Carter works over at the Plasma to do some dumpster diving. <laughs> Carter, what are you looking at? Well, that's it. Uh, today's opening report for clients was just that, titled Dumpster Diving, things that are basically going straight down versus the equity market in general, which is going straight up. And do they represent an opportunity? So five names uh, that have basically are so bad they're good, but they're starting to bottom. So you know what these people do, whether it's mac and cheese or ketchup, and you also know what its chart has done, which is straight down and to the right, but just starting, yes, and I'll zoom in here a bit, just starting to break above the downtrend line. Okay, let's go to the next. Ready? Same picture. I mean, I, it's almost though I didn't change the chart. It's U.S. Steel. You know what they do. They're, they're a steel company. Same thing. Just starting to break above the downtrend. But the common circumstance is these are all duds. They're, it's dumpster diving. These are things that have basically been going down for two years as equity markets are making noise. But each has just started to perk out above the downtrend line. Two more. Freeport, again, same circumstance. Let's zoom in here and you can see it just ever so slightly getting above the downtrend. And then finally, um, GE, which is quite a bit more above its downtrend. So consider those five names. Obviously, there are a lot more in the report. And consider the following. Names you know, decent market cap, U.S. Steel being smaller, but in total, $210 billion dollars. Now, this is the setup, the one-two setup. What we know, and we've seen it from the charts, is that look at the two-year performance. I mean, think of it. Equity markets are up at uh, all-time highs, and this down 61, 52, 40, 70, down, down, down. Okay, that's the setup. And then the leg up is this. Now flip it around. Look what they've done over the past three months. Again, markets done this. They're all outperforming. So you have the one-two setup of great weakness followed by recent nascent strength. And here is a basket of that uh, group. I think there are several ways you can do this. You can call this a double bottom. You could also get rid of that and call this the perspective beginning of a head and shoulders. But put the same line in and just ever so slightly, let's zoom in, 
this group as a group, that $210 billion is moving above the downtrend. I think dumpster diving between now and year end will be the place to be. Mm-hmm. Carter, come on over. Bring him in, of course. Yeah, young Will will bring the chair. Now, as Will brings does. in, you know, Will also went to the Harvard like you did. That yes. Harvard-Yale game, historic <laughs> in nature. Not because of the halftime thing. Uh-huh. The game itself, I know you watched, uh-huh. didn't you, Melissa? Every second. Uh-huh. High score. You know. Yeah. Hey, Boomer, what was it like in the 60s? When yeah, you ha, ha. <laughs> anyway, um, so for these breakouts to occur, is the backdrop does the backdrop have to be a rising stock market? Not necessarily. So there's two things that happen when you have a, a fairly extended general equity market. Money gets a little bit, um, well, annoyed or desperate and says, let me find something that hasn't come to life. Let's go and play the laggard. So that typically happens as you're reaching the mature stages of a big run in the market. Laggards get played. Um, now, one could say, okay, this is the whole value growth subject. It's not really anything. What it is is, does U.S. Steel versus Microsoft in the next 36 months, is there, Microsoft will kill U.S. Steel. Will Caterpillar beat Google in the next 36 months? Not a chance. Will any of those duds beat great growth stocks? No. But can you make more money now in the next three, five, six, eight weeks, just as you just saw there over the past three months, these stocks are killing the market, right? So the setup of great weakness followed by emerging strength Typically, that kind of turn, that momentum uh, can be played. But, Carter, so uh, of the five names you picked, two of them, I think, are recovery stories. Kraft and GE are right, certainly places. They're all places. idiosyncratic. But, right? but, but no, well, but I would make an argument as, as much as Freeport and X and Slumbers, they have their own also idiosyncratics. I think they could be traded as a group. And I think they could be traded essentially with some stabilizing of commodity prices and a global cyclicality. Um, do you see that going on across that space? Because it's not really those happening three are, in energy. Uh, it's not really happening in copper. You look at the price of copper. So it's. I mean, and I picked those because they're big names that people know. The list was quite long, right, uh, three and 400 names. And a lot of them are small cap. In fact, that is the nature of dumpster diving. You're typically finding fairly small names. Uh, the median price in the list is about uh, $2 billion market cap. That's a fairly small stock. Carter, what do you think? That there's another group that's in the dumpster. It's the Uber, it's the Lyft, it's the Slack. Okay, these were 2019 IPOs well off of their highs and well off their IPO prices. Could you see any sort of seasonal effect in the last month of the year where a lot of people might have vested interest in seeing these things higher? Um, yes, all of those, without exception, are basically super duds, right? Yeah. Pinterest, Beyond Me, Uber, <laughs> Lyft. Duds and, and super, super duds. duds. Super duds. Uh, but, but as opposed to these long-term duds, which are at least showing <laughs> us some life, meaning the Chartist is a coward. I want you to go first, and I'll be right behind you. I never want to buy a stock just in a gross downtrend, and that's what those stocks Although Lyft's up 30%. Well, 30 uh, what I'm saying yeah. is they look like oh, they're trying they to bottom yeah, your term. That's almost too nascent, right? Yeah. That's yeah. only a day or two. I want it to show that basing, bottoming action that would suggest it's got a little more traction. But just to quickly tie it back to the original conversation we were having at the top of the show with the IWM, are those, you mentioned smaller cap stocks, that's what made up the, the list primarily. That's right. Is that what we're seeing in the well, Russell so overall? So if you look at what's so curious about the move today in small caps, which is what happens when speculative uh, action or risk on is going on, growth outperformed value. That's the real tell today, right? The, the Russell 2000 has is, is got a big weighting in banks, which is value, right. and yet the IWO outperformed the IWN. And, and that's very interesting because it wasn't, quote, value that outperformed growth today in small cap. All right. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth. Love Carter Great Worth. Work. You know, you have a major, well, he did not mention Carter, and I'm not bringing him back, but you have a major double bottom at eight and a half in Freeport McMoran. We have actually talked about that. Bank of America Merrill Lynch is upgraded at $14 price target. You say that's not a big deal. Percentage wise, that's a big deal from here. It's a 20% move. I think you're going to see it. And U.S. Steel, which has been awful 
since March when President Trump announced the tariffs went from 45 to 10 in a straight line. That's another stock that I think can bounce. And he mentioned nascent twice in an eight-minute span. I think that's a penalty. No, I think it's a wonderful word. That's, you know, it should be used more. I know what it means. No, he means anyway. he's he went over with it. He went over with it. Coming up. Did nice. I think it's fine. I'm the final arbiter. Palo Alto Networks and PVH both reporting after the bell. We'll tell you what's got those stocks moving in the after hours and later. Buckle up because we have a car industry triple play. The three big stories in the driver's seat today. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Time for an Earnings Whip. Check out PVH and Palo Alto Networks, both moving in the after-hour session. We've got full team coverage. Frank Holland standing by on PVH, but we start with Josh Lipton in San Francisco and Palo Alto. Josh. So, Melissa, uh, CEO Nikesh Arora is on the call and saying that his company is now building products with AI and ML, so recognizing that this is an evolving technology. Customers see the benefits and are betting on the company, he says. Uh, how is the company progressing against sort of its long-term goals? Arora is saying uh, they're doing better on some metrics, like guidance when it comes to billings. They put out this $800 million, uh, plus bogey. Uh, our teams have delivered on that, Arora is saying. So they actually increased next-gen security billings by $10 million. But just going back and forth right now with this analyst who covers the name and the sector who notes that they did fall short uh, on products. So legacy, on-prem, firewall, hardware, and software. Analysts also point out the competition really here, notably from the the cloud security players like Fortinet, have been showing more upside, he says. Uh, For EPS margins and cash flow, uh, Aurora saying, listen, we are not looking to cut costs. We're looking to invest. We intend to stick with the company's financial targets. And analysts are also asking about tariffs and the impact there. The CFO saying... uh, uh, they do source some components from China. We have felt the impact, she says. We did increase pricing on firewalls to offset tariff impact. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. Uh, guidance as much as 19 cents short of consensus estimates. That's the problem. I mean, because the first quarter was fine, beat by a couple cents, revenue beat. But yeah, the second quarter guidance, $1.12 basically. The street was at a buck thirty. That's no good when you trade at that valuation. On top of which, and I know Dan will look at in a second, you have now a major double top at 250 going back to April. That's a stock that went from 250 to 200, back to 250 in a straight line. What does it mean? Well, it means you don't buy it here. You wait and let this thing settle. Valuation is too high. I think it probably may retest that $200 level. And this is a great example of what you just said. Valuation is pretty high. And then all of a sudden you look at the guidance and they don't actually come through. And Josh mentioned something else, which is very important. All the competition that's out there. We talk about this in every single area that we we talk about every single night. But when you look at it, whether it's in streaming or whatever, competition is there. And and the competition in this particular space, cybersecurity, is at an incredible level. Mm -hmm. So it's something that they've got to deal with. And when they give that kind of guidance, that's exactly the reaction they should get. However, that being said... This goes down much further. I think it's going to be a great opportunity, Mel, because like to what? this is, well, I think it's got to get down towards that 220 level, maybe something like that. If it gets near there, I think that's the area to buy. All right, let's get to PVH now. That stock is also on the move after reporting. Frank Holland's back at headquarters with the details. Frank. Hey there, Melissa. Shares of PVH moving up and now much lower after reporting a beat on revenues and a strong beat on EPS. The company also raised the top in the bottom range of its full year guidance after lowering it last quarter. The Tommy Hilfiger brand, where PVH gets about 45% of revenues, that saw 10% growth, but the gains are coming primarily from outside the U.P. of the U.S. 
The commentary from the CEO, that's where this stock really took a hit. PVH CEO Manny Chirico said the holiday season will be competitive and highly promotional. He also expects macroeconomic and geopolitical volatility will continue to be a headwind. On Mad Money, he told Jim Cramer how his business is being directly impacted by the uncertain climate surrounding tariffs. You know, it's the worst part about Jim is the uncertainty. I'm right. sitting here on December 1st, thereabouts, and I don't know what my costs are going to be on January. That's crazy. Because, you know, I, is it a 15% tariff, is it a 25% tariff, or is it a 0% tariff? All right, back to the earnings numbers. We spoke to several analysts. David Swartz from Morningstar said, it's clear we are looking at a very promotional market in North America, referencing the CEO's comments. But they are equipped to handle it. They are so international. Calvin and Tommy have so much revenue outside of North America. Dana Telsley of Telsley Advisor Group said, when you look at the complexions of the business, the outperformance in Europe for Tommy Hilfiger and solid growth of Calvin in Europe, Europe is what helps them grow. And we're going to hear much more from the CEO of PVH that's coming up on Mad Money. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Frank. Thank you, Frank Holland. Back at headquarters. It almost sounds like Manny Chirico is just being conservative. Well, he was conservative also on their fiscal cues. So, again, right. it's fiscal. So they're talking about their fiscal Q3, which is essentially uh, then going into this holiday season, so not to be confused. But th- they've had two quarters in a row where they've essentially ratcheted down expectations, and they've told you um, it's a very difficult environment. And North America was going to be somewhat sideways. And that's really what we've seen. Uh, you know, they have new product lines in Calvin Klein. There's a couple new exciting bells and whistles. But this is one of those brands to me that I think has gotten somewhat, you know, commoditized and, and, and ubiquitous. And I think that trade's very different than some of the higher-end stuff. Stock went from 170 in July of 18 to 70, up to 100. So, I mean, you've had a pretty significant move over the last couple of months. But I think valuation, it's actually somewhat a compelling story. The guidance wasn't awful. I don't know who's buying Calvin Klein. If you recall Back to the Future... Do you remember that whole movie? I believe she, she thought his name was Calvin because, because of his, his the, briefs. Right. And if yeah. you recall, on Friday, we had a guest on that was talking about where he buys his undergarments. So the whole thing is really tying oh, together. I'd really be more is. inclined to buy a sell-off in PVH than to sell it here. For a full wrap of uh, today's earnings movers, head on over to our website, cnbc.com. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. It may not look like your average pickup, but Tesla's Cybertruck has sparked plenty of interest already. But are the pre-orders as good as they might seem? And later, biotech stocks hitting their highest level in more than a year. We look for opportunities in the red-hot sector. All that and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Car talk front and center in the market today. Uber getting hit as London pumps the brakes on the ride-sharing service. Lift off for Lyft is on an analyst upgrade. And Tesla rising on Cybertruck hype. We begin there because, as Phil LeBeau is about to show you, it may not be as it seems. Phil, what do you mean? Well, you've got 200,000 reservations. That's how many were received through yesterday, according to Elon Musk. We haven't had an update today. But this brings up the question, how many of these reservations... Uh, at $100 a pop will actually turn into orders. And how does it compare to previous models? Well, we've got a little bit of data there. Now, remember, it's a $100 deposit for the Cybertruck. It was a $1,000 deposit for the Model 3 back in 2016. Ultimately, uh, Tesla says they got up to 455,000 reservations there. As for the Model Y, it's a $2,500 deposit. 
They've never told us how many pre-orders they have for the Model Y. In announcing the reservation totals uh, over the weekend, Elon Musk said the Cybertruck order so far, 42% of the uh, people putting down a deposit have said, yeah, we want the 49,000 dual motor version. 41% want the tri-motor, the highest version, which will start at 69.9. And then 17% want the single motor. Remember, these vehicles are scheduled to be delivered at the end of 2021. And Melissa, we can't stress this enough. Just because there are reservations there, there's no way of knowing. At least we haven't been able to uh, figure out at this point, and analysts haven't been able to figure out, how many of these pre-orders actually turn into full orders and customers buying a particular vehicle. I've talked with people who put an order in for the Model 3, and they ultimately ended up buying it. I also talked with others who said, yeah, I put it in, and I decided I wasn't going to wait around, so I got my $1,000 back. And, and at this point, it's a little hard to figure out exactly how many of these 200,000s will turn into paying customers. There's a lot we don't know, certainly, about these numbers, Phil. But yeah. when he tweeted, it's interesting that Elon Musk chose the word orders as opposed to deposits. deposits. Yeah, and I know some people are saying, you know, is this a violation of the terms of the SEC agreement? Look, I, now, you're, now you're getting into a real fine area here, and I'm sure the uh, SEC maybe heard from some people who said, there he is, he's violating the terms again. I, I didn't read it that way, Melissa. I took at it and say, okay, he didn't write pre-orders, he wrote orders. Um, that's, that's how I looked at it. But, you know, you, some people are probably listening to me saying, oh, you're naive. Elon can push the envelope as much as he wants. I didn't take it that way. It's interesting how, how on... I was going to say on fire, but he was so active on Twitter, updating 187, 200K. Yeah. Um, he also tweeted, Cybertrucks are last product unveiled for a while, but there will be some mostly unexpected technology announcements next year, which also seems like he's pushing the envelope. Right. And well, but he has said this in the past, that there will be technology <laughs> announcements. Look, I expect that they're probably going to have another battery analyst day, similar to what they had last mm-hmm. year. Remember, that was the one. It didn't go over too well with the analysts who were there. They felt like they asked more questions than they received answers. Also, especially when it came to what's going to happen with autopilot and full self-driving mode. So I suspect that those are the types of things that we will likely hear from Tesla and from Elon Musk over the next six months or nine months. All right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us. So how do you take this news? I mean, there are a lot of holes in these numbers or unknowns, let's say. I'll tell you how you take it. You take it the way the stock trader did. Effectively closed, almost unchanged on the day, which I can't believe Mr. Musk is all that happy about, given what he said over the weekend with all these orders. I'm sure in his mind, that brilliant mind that it is, thought the stock would recoup all the losses we saw last week and probably gain some, and it didn't. I'm in the Tim Seymour camp. I understand why people want to be bullish. I think it's had a tremendous move. I understand the cash flow story. But you would be short this stock. Given the choice between, would you rather long or short? I would rather be short, yes. They're making moonshot cars by Kickstarter. I mean, have at it. I, I, I just don't get a $100 deposit. It seems like a ridiculous thing. I'm actually really interested. Last week, I put down a $500 deposit on the Ford Mach-E that's going to be delivered right. in late 2020. And I'd be really interested to see their execution, how that thing comes out. I suspect that thing comes out on time. I mean, this thing, this car's never going to be made. So when you're talking about the difference between orders and this and that, whatever, I don't get it. If you want to build cars by Kickstarter, have at it. But um, I don't think you do it with a company that's got a $60 billion market cap. Are you going to join the bear, bear parade no, here I'm, on I, Tesla? I, I, I'm not. I understand it completely. And by the way, we're talking about the late 2021 on the delivery of this thing. I mean, yeah, we're not maybe. talking about... So, yeah, maybe. maybe. 
if that's even close to the number. I, I still look at it as you, we talked about it at the top of the show. Implied volatilities have gotten tamped down, extremely down. And now on the put side, in something like Tesla, with the shorts that are still existing out there, you're still going to look at some nice premiums. Mm-hmm. On the call side, on the other hand, you've got a little bit of room there where you can put on some spreads that are very inexpensive for any kind of squeeze to the upside. Have you done that? I haven't done it, but I was looking at it today. You were? Yeah, yeah I absolutely was. What would the catalyst be in your view? Uh, you know, just the continuation of the fact that all this news, uh-huh. and not all of it's been great news. Matter of fact, very little of it has been. And yet, look at where the stock is. And, and you always say this all the time, Guy. Hey, you know what? The reaction of these things is what really matters. The reaction so far has been this stock moving to the other. But hasn't the news been great? I mean, has it, it been you're, great? If you're I following mean, Tesla over the last couple of years, the news over the last three or four months, and most notably that around the earnings cycle and the cash flow and the profitability of the company, to me, is all you could want to hear. Because this other stuff doesn't even make any sense. I mean, they had 273,000 uh, Model 3 orders in the first weekend as well. That was awesome. And if you think that equates to demand, but I think the, anyway, I think the news, as someone that's not bullish, um, has been bullish. And, and therefore, I think this is... But the interpretations that we got uh, in their most recent report, the interpretations we got, for the most part, weren't all that positive. Of what? Of, of their earnings. I mean, when, uh, when I say earnings, I, no, when we're talking the about the actual numbers themselves that, that Tesla has, those numbers are still very suspect and very interesting to look at, and not everybody thinks it's well bullish. Said. Yeah. Well, All right, let's uh, shift gears, so mm. to speak, to the ride-sharing space. Uber falling after London stripped the company of its operating license, citing concerns over passenger safety. safety. Separately, Lyft catching a bid after Loop uh, upgraded the stock to a buy, the firm projecting that Lyft will break even in 2021, thanks in part to a better competitive environment. So is Lyft the better ride-sharing play here? And specifically in the Lyft upgrade, what was interesting was that the analysts had mentioned Uber being caught up in all these sort of international battles. Yep. Yep. Well, like look, London. <laughs> I, I think Lyft has chosen uh, a, a format to play on a local level that's actually worked. They're certainly not expanding their business line. We talk about that all the time. It's the pure play. And if you look at how the stocks perform, this is one of those dumpster dives that actually it's it didn't just start to turn. This thing started to turn about two months ago and is up 30 percent in about 35 sessions. So uh, at some point, though, I think this was very overdone, very much short selling and some of a squeeze. It's hard to get excited about profitability, even though they've given you some sense late 2020. Who knows? It's a super dud, though, according to Carter. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. Right? <laughs> so, so get Nason in there. When you don't have profit. No. Sorry, Dan. No, but when, when you don't have a profit story to talk about here and now, you've got to hear consistency from the management. I think list management has been consistent about when that's going to happen. So, you know, the stock bottomed out at 37 bucks about a month and a half ago. It's trading at $49. It IPO'd at 72 It traded as high as 88 I suspect you see a little bit of a short squeeze. I think when you see Uber dealing with some of these issues um, globally, I think it probably makes some investors who love the rideshare, gig economy, all that sort of stuff, you said, let's stick it right to home. Let's hear how they dealt with the California regulation issue. I think they were very transparent about that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's just an easier story to handle right now, in my opinion. Well, at what point do you think Dara Khosrowshahi has a problem? Because you've been critical of Dara after yeah. the Axios interview, Oof. after the exchange on Deal Book. Yeah. Um, you have this now. I think this is a, a company where I think the uh, board, I know there has been some turnover. I think they still have issues. They're all in behind Dara right now. I mean, listen, this is a very complicated story. And I think it's one that, you know, they can't even put their 
finger on when they kind of say they'll be profitable. So to me, I just think Lyft is a much, much easier story right now to invest in if you'd like the idea of rideshare on the way to autonomy. All right, coming up, a big deal in the biotech space, sending the group to a new 52-week high. But has the sector made a full recovery? We'll hear from the traders. And later, shopping for a deal, the one retail stock options traders are eyeing into earnings. We'll bring you that name when Fast Money returns. Mm. Uh, welcome back to Fast Cholesterol, drug maker, the medicines company, topping the tape today. This, after Swiss giant Novartis offered to buy it for $9.7 billion, that deal giving a big boost to the biotech sector overall. The IVB jumping more than 2% to hit a new 52-week high. The Nasdaq Biotech Index now up more than 10% over the past month. So is this just the beginning of an even bigger breakout for the space? We flagged this on Friday also. Well, I, I, it's been a huge move. I don't know if it's the beginning, but it's certainly, I think there's still room to the upside. I mean, Amgen, all-time high. We, we've talked about this stock for years. Valuation is compelling. Makes sense, absolutely. You've seen what happened with Celgene, obviously, with that acquisition, with Bristol-Myers. I think there's a lot of room in the space, absolutely. And in a low interest rate environment where cash is free, People are going to reach. That's what happened with the medicines company. I think that's what's going to happen again with some other names. That deal seemed kind of expensive, Pete. Seems pretty expensive. And Novartis has done this twice now, just yeah. in the last year and a half or so. So, I mean, it's amazing how much they're willing to go out on a limb when they were kind of holding back for a while. But I, I, I agree with Guy in terms of there are a lot of names out there where you look at them and you say, wow, Biogen, for instance, trades at 10 times earnings. Uh, it, it's pretty spectacular, although this move has been huge on the Alzheimer's potential. So we've already had a huge move in the stock, but it still trades at that valuation. So I think there's a lot of opportunities out there, whether it's Amgen, Regeneron, Biogen, all these types of names. I don't know how many more are going to get bought up, but I do think that there is an appetite out there for smaller acquisitions by some of the big pharma names. Yeah, this deal is interesting, as everyone says, because, yes, they're already in cardiovascular. They have a number of other product launches. The, the valuation wasn't great. And this is everything that bummed people out about the biotech sector two years ago. Um, everybody said, hey, they have to do something. That's, it's a very aggressive environment. Put that balance sheet to work. So they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. But I, I think this is a function of where the market has been reaching for laggards. We talked about that in different ways in the early part of the show. Fantastic balance sheets, not just decent balance sheets, fantastic balance sheets. And companies, I think, we've maybe overestimated just how limited the pipeline is. I mean, the criticism to having very good balance sheets with a lot of cash is that you have enough cash to do something with. You dangerous. also have enough cash, right, exactly, to do some <laughs> ill-fated deal. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll just mention this. You know, you're talking about the IBB and you're talking the breakout. And, Mel, your question is just getting started. Go look at the XLV. That's the Healthcare Select ETF. That's the balance sheets that a lot of these big um, pharma, that thing just broke out at 96 bucks or something like that. It's only a few bucks from there. You want to play a breakout. You want to play a lagger. It's only up 15% of the year. That's a space that I would go to into, I guess, year end and then so you're starting looking more year big out. Pharma than yeah, than, I mean, yeah. and, and listen, when those guys have made acquisitions, they made good tuck-ins, they actually stocks have gone up. Up next, discount retailer Dollar Tree out with earnings tomorrow morning. We dive into that, into what the options market is saying ahead of those results. And later, we're just hours away from Alibaba's Hong Kong listing. It will be the biggest of the year. But will shares live up to the hype? Stick with us. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Dollar Tree seeing a big bounce today, and options traders are betting on an even bigger rally when the retailer reports results tomorrow. Let's get to Bonwin Eisen of XP Investments. So, Bonwin, what's the setup going into earnings? So, taking a look at Dollar Tree, we can see that 
The way the market is shaping up, people are expecting a pretty significant move to the upside. And that's borne itself out in both the stock and the options. If we take a look here at the implied move, you can see that the Friday straddle is implying a 6% move in either direction between now and then. That's on the rich side. On average, the stock moves about 4% on the back of earnings. Taking it a step further, what you can see is that calls outweigh puts two times to one. Again, the same story. Guys are a bit bulled up. Despite the fact that option volumes have been pretty low leading up until today, we saw a real robust volume in terms of the calls being purchased today, which takes me to the implied move. Two things that I want to point out here. One is that you can see that implied volatility is a bit rich right here. The second thing that I want you to read into is that there's some cyclicality to option prices here. And we see leading up into every earnings move every quarter, option prices get expensive and then sell off. And we see that repeated time and time again. The last thing that I'd like you to focus on is the stock itself. I want you to have an understanding of how the stock is trading leading up until tomorrow's earning announcement. So two things here. The stock had a small gap, harder to pick here, right here. And we've yet to fill in that channel. We've bounced off it a couple of times. We've also had a short-term downtrend. And today, on real volume in both the option and the stock, we've really started to make that move upwardly and aggressively to the upside. Net-net, looking at the stock and the options, guys are pretty optimistic going to tomorrow morning. All right. Thank thanks you. for that, Bono. And Eisen, uh, who's into Dollar Tree? I like I'll, you I'll talk about Well, one of okay. the issues for the company has been the gross margin. There's been a headwind. And I think one of the things these guys are trying to guide the market is that you're starting to see that change going into next year. So if you look at what, that, what they announced in fiscal Q, uh, it was a case where I think they've guided that things are getting a little bit better there. I think, I think you can own the stock. All right, don't forget, no, no show this Friday. Unfortunately. Oh, what are you going to do? What a half day of That's trading. Have Wednesday yeah. is the, it's the hump day it's in the, the gobble day. gobble. Exactly. Friday off, bro. Up next, Stranger <laughs> Things happening to Netflix. The stock climbing today despite a big downgrade. We'll dive into the action. And as we head out, check out the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb, which just completed its acquisition of Celgene. That full interview coming up top of the hour. We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more fast money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix shrugging off a big downgrade from Wells Fargo to underperform. The firm flagging content costs and high spending as trouble areas. I spoke with the analyst behind this call today on Power Lunch. He told me the math just doesn't add up. Netflix has been losing around $2 per subscriber per month, so it's charging around $10 on a global basis for that streaming service. It's spending about 12 on that same subscriber. Despite the move to a sell, Netflix ended the day in the green. And get this, it's now the best-performing Fang stock this month, up 9%. So will Netflix stream higher from here? There's actually one line in his note saying where we might be wrong, people don't care. It looked like people didn't care today. That's been the bull story for Netflix yeah. for a long time. People don't care. And we said, I know we sat on this desk and said it's going to trade down to 250. It's going to hold. 250 was the low we saw in December 2019. And spot on, that's what happened. How much more room? I think there is room. 325-ish is a 50% retracement of the entire move we've seen from top to bottom. 
But I do think there's still room to the upside in Netflix, yes. Well, in a runaway bull market, there's plenty of room for these guys to, to, to again, to have a catch-up trade up 24% in about 40 sessions. If you look at FANG across the board, again, you know, we've been waiting for Amazon. Amazon, too, you break kind of 1850, you probably get back to 2000. But I, I think the fundamental story at Netflix is one that has challenges, especially with the competition. It's always been challenged, though, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's gotten more because of, I understand what you're saying, but I think when you talk about U.S., the challenges are already there. We already know they're there. But I think international is where they're going to grow. And they talk about the India market. Markets, Tim, and you know yep. far more about this than like. I do. But the fact that internet is getting better, 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 bigger, bigger, faster out there—that's something that's going to be huge for them. As a matter of fact, they claim it's the next hundred million subscribers that come out of, and that's what right. so what does it cost them to get to the hundred million subscribers? You're right. they, they, just like th- it's that been analyst just said, they lose two dollars per subscriber on original content, three to four billion dollars in negative free cash flow to create that I, content. You want to go to India and you want to make that content just for India? Have at it. I mean, that's going to cost, you know, a lot. And then when you think about North America, where we know the ARPU is so much higher than Why do you suppose the stock didn't get hit you, today ARPU after this observation? No, ARPU is good. I, the have at it. When you can bring have at it. <laughs> yeah. ARPU and ARPU. I'm just saying, if, if, if that's the story that you want to circle. find the next 100 million users in some third world country. Third world. Okay. We don't use the term anymore. Okay, well, I'm just developing saying. Emerging market. market. Yeah, developing, developing market, market. Developing economy. Well, I'm just saying. You I mean, guys are just so like. Okay, boomer. That doesn't even work. It does. It's not boomer. Nice laugh track. It doesn't work that is, in that context. <laughs> laugh track. Right, perfect I mean, timing. you could try that again uh, later on. No, and then figure it out right there. Five minutes the show. From e-video to e-commerce, Alibaba is just hours away from listing its shares in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange in what will be the largest public share sale of the year. Deidre Bose is in San Francisco with all the details. Deidre. Hi, Melissa. It's also a homecoming for Alibaba. The Hong Kong market opens at 9.30 a.m. local time, 8.30 Eastern tonight. But don't expect all the bells and whistles of a traditional IPO. For one, Chinese investors, they know Alibaba. Its e-commerce and digital media is everywhere across the country. And secondly, Alibaba has been keeping a low profile during the listing process as Hong Kong continues to be rocked by pro-democracy protests. Still, guys, demand has been strong, and the company closed the books half a day earlier than planned at 11 $1.2 billion or almost $13 billion if it exercises an over-allotment option. It will represent the biggest share sale in Hong Kong in nearly a decade, as Melissa just mentioned. It will also boost Alibaba's cash reserves to nearly $45 billion, begging the question, what does Alibaba do with all of that cash? In past years, the company has not shied away from buying its way into new businesses or markets, put $4 billion into Lazada to tap the Southeast Asian e-commerce market, $800 million for controlling stake in Tsiniao to boost its logistics footprint, the South China Morning Post for $266 million, the cross-border e-commerce site Koala for $2 billion. So Alibaba could continue the shopping spree with fresh capital, or guys, of course, Alibaba could always just use the proceeds to return money to shareholders through dividends and or buybacks. Shares of Alibaba in New York are up nearly 40% this year, but over the last two years, they are flat. Buybacks could be a way to boost its share price and potentially shift its investor base to Hong Kong, a process that may just be starting tonight. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Deidre. Thank you, Deidre Bosa in San Francisco. You're watching this very closely. Yeah, so this this deal is important because you also brought in an enormous retail audience. We've talked a lot about how the market trades out there, and, and this stock has not been available in Asian trading hours. It was 40 times oversubscribed to the retail audience they brought in. No, they didn't need to raise this money. But I think this is more about diversifying the investor base at a times when this stock, one of the reasons why it's been flat for the last two years, this has been one of the ultimate proxy trade war stocks. 
stocks. So 190 is your top there. Um, that, to me, is critical breakout. I think we're close. The stock trades at a peg ratio of 0.5. Uh, so if you look at the mega cap names around the world, this is a company I think is as cheap as any. Yeah, aside from diversifying the shareholder base, I mean, the idea of essentially doing a secondary in Hong Kong Largest to do it and putting that cash on your thing, it seems like a fairly brilliant transaction, especially, I think it was interesting that Deirdre said the company has kind of kept a low profile during this listing. I think there's going to be increased demand for more shares in Hong Kong, specifically in this name. If memory serves, Bonowin was here recently, and he talked about the Alibaba and we had mentioned that there's a real good chance for it to go back to that 205 level that we last saw. Why is everybody smiling at me in June of 2018? So I think I concur with Tim and Dan on this. It's the addition of the article in front of the company. The Alibaba. Yeah. And Mel, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen more and more Baba being bought in terms of the option markets, and the 205 strike is exactly what they're going for. So I'm in the calls. I don't know if you're in the calls, but I've seen a lot of activity coming in there. Up next, final trades. Trade time, Pete. We have seen some monster paper in EEM today. It was even bigger. 100,000 calls were bought to the upside. I'm in those. Giddy up. This thing's going higher. Ambassador. Yeah, this Alibaba thing may be a catalyst for a stock that's been sideways. Also, Ant Financial, you've got some dynamics here. Some of the parts, I like it. Dan? Uh, yeah, Carter Worth on this program a couple weeks ago called that XLV breakout. I think you buy it on pullbacks to that 96. I think that's good support. It's a fun show tonight. Yeah. Was zipped it? along. Oh, They're always fun, guys. You know, the Blackstone, if you look, and it is the Blackstone, BX, that's been stealth moved to the upside. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Well, the stock's going higher, too. Mama name them, Clay. All right. All we'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.